Hey, Jess. Hey, Kat. How are you? Frickin' tired. <laughs> I was about to say us both yawn at the same time. Uh. Literally. Literally. Uh, and we had to we had to delay recording because I literally had the hiccups for like thirty minutes. And I said I didn't want to get off the couch. <laughs> I said I was like, Jess, I promise I'll get off the couch in five minutes, but I need five more minutes. Yeah. It's uh it's been a rough week and it's, yeah. Yeah. Just crazy. I don't know if everybody else has had a crazy week, but like what is it? Is there, is Mercury in retrograde? Like, right. I, is that yeah. what's happening? I think something's in full moon, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> if you know what it means. New moon. Let us new know. moon. Oh, we're in new moon. Do I know what that means? I said it like I knew what that meant. <laughs> like, I was like, I mean, oh, like I twilight. <laughs> right? New yeah. moon. Isn't I don't like know. The like new beginning, new this, new this. I don't know. Yeah, don't but know. it's like, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Anyways, Maybe. we're tired, and you're Anywho, here. <laughs> if you hear a yawn or two, I hope you're not listening in the morning, so you're not yawning on your way to work. <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to edit them out, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Help everybody out. So what are, I was about to say, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? I don't even know. Um, have you ever heard of the Lindbergh kidnapping? It sounds familiar, actually. It's, like, very famous in history. Okay. Maybe as you... Maybe. Okay. Well, if not, It doesn't not, just you'll immediately learn. pop up. Okay. Yeah. If not, I'm about to educate you. <laughs> right. I'm about to learn anyway. I'm going to throw a trigger warning out there right now, just, like, to forewarn you guys that it is... It has to do with a 20-month-old baby. Oh my god. And it that's all I'm going to say about that right now. Okay. But it does have a, a happy ending. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm fine. Let's go. Okay. So I wanted to start by going a little bit into the baby's family okay. history, kind okay. of, um, because it's super interesting. Oh. So the baby's dad, I'm going to start with him being born. Uh, baby's dad was named Charles Augustus Lindbergh. He was born on February 4th, 19, 1902, into a very prominent family in Detroit, Michigan. Okay. His father was a lawyer who was actually elected into the U.S. House of Representatives. And his mother was a high school chemistry teacher. Okay. Which, like, back then, it was still, like, women didn't really work. and Yeah. You know. Okay. So she's, like... Because uh, it was pre-war. Oh, I see. Okay. Makes sense. The parents' relationship was stressed but they never publicly got divorced, probably because of the way society was back then. Right. Um, but in 1905, their home was completely destroyed in a fire, 
And from then on, Charles' parents, they lived in separate homes. But with Charles' father working in D.C., they would end up, like, the mom and the son, Charles, would travel to D.C. and spend time there with him. So um, the dad could, like, have time with them. Okay. That is odd, but okay. I say that's odd. I guess maybe some people do that, but I find it odd. (laughs) Yeah. So, Charles ended up going to college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and after only three semesters, he dropped out and then enrolled at the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation's Flying School. Okay. So, in 1924, he enrolled in Army Flying School and graduated at the top of his class. Dang, okay. Yeah. After graduation, he accepted a job in St. Louis as the chief pilot for the Robertson Aircraft Corporation. So, and that was in 1924, so I'm backtracking a little bit. Um, In 1919, a man named Raymond Ortigue offered a $25,000 prize, which today is $440,000. Um. The prize was for the first team that could fly nonstop between New York City and Paris, France. It just clicked okay. why I know this story. Yes. <laughs> just right now. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Yes. So when Charles heard of the prize, he immediately started working on a flight plan. He talked about his plan with a ton of prominent businessmen who supported aviation in general and they essentially ended up funding the expedition as Charles would have to purchase or build a plane to handle such a rigorous flight. Right. So for $10,580 which is over $170,000 today he bought a single engine monoplane built by Ryan Aeronautical aeronautical company in san diego and the plane was called the spirit of st louis okay cute that's an expensive Mm -hmm. plane for it to be like a like even for today like today planes aren't i mean don't get me wrong you can get like a bajillion dollar plane right but like that's a (laughs) a pretty pricey plane okay i know but it has to like withstand right flying over the ocean right yeah Um, because no one has done that long of a flight, I don't think, ever. Right. Um, up until this point. Mm Mm-hmm. So, by 1927, six pilots attempted the challenge and lost their lives in the process. Oh, my God. That didn't deter Charles, though, and he ended up loading up his plane with 450 gallons of gas and set off to Paris on March 20th, 1927, at 7.52 a.m. 33 and a half hours later, he landed just outside of Paris. Okay. I mean, they did it. Yeah. Charles being the first one successful at crossing the Atlantic, he got back to the U.S., collected his prize, and became globally famous. I was about to say, I mean, he's Charles Lindenberg. Yeah. When he returned home, he ended up doing a tour of the U.S., Central America, and South America to promote aviation. Those pilots are a special type. Yeah, they are. You married one. (laughs) I I know. (laughs) 
when he was in Mexico, he ended up meeting Anne Morrow, who was the daughter of the U.S. ambassador. And in 1929, they married and settled in New Jersey. Okay. And on June 22nd, 1930, they had their first child, Charles Jr. And they would go on to have five more children after that. I feel like that's just kind of what you did. You had many yep. a children. Many a children. Five. <laughs> <laughs> on the evening of March 1st, 1932, around 9 p.m., Charles Jr. was taken from his nursery on the second floor of the Lindbergh home. Around 10 p.m., the child's nurse, Betty Gow, went to check on him and noticed he was missing. She immediately alerted Charles and Anne, and everyone started searching the home and estate. So, I don't know if you know this or whatever, but the second floor of the home. So, like, there had to have been, like, a window. Yep. Okay. There's a window uh, in the nursery. I'm thinking, like, a New Jersey building. Like, if we're in New Jersey, there's, yeah. like, staircases and windows and whatever. Yeah. It's not like in well, Texas where, like, somebody would have to scale my house. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's, a, it's, I mean, they had an estate. They were wealthy. They. Okay. Oh, so somebody yeah. scaled the house. Somebody scaled the house. Dang. Okay. Yeah. That's terrifying. I'm <laughs> like, yes. that's terrifying. Looks and make sure windows locked. <laughs> yeah. It's oh a, yeah. It's a, that just reminded me of the Elizabeth Smart where you're like, close the frickin' window. <laughs> I literally made my husband close, like, he, he didn't lock our kitchen window. And I was like, just so you know, that's how Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped. Amazing. I love it. Um, So while they were searching the house and estate, they found a note on the nursery windowsill asking for a ransom of $50,000, which is over $1 million today. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, The Lindberghs notified the local police, and then the state police kind of came in and took charge of the investigation. Yeah, like, at that point, it's a high-profile case. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during a search at the scene, police found traces of mud on the floor, but were unable to capture any footprints. Um, they found a broken ladder that had been used to get up to the second floor, and it was, like, kind of broken in half. So it was likely broken on the descent. Oh, yeah, and it was like a handmade la- ladder. It was what the hell? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no blood or fingerprints were found in the nursery. No blood, fingerprints, or yeah. an accurate shoe print. Okay, yep. so much to go off of. Yep. So employees of this the estate were questioned, and Charles tried to make public appeals at this time to the kidnappers to start negotiations. Right. Um, a second ransom note was received by Charles on March 6, 1932. It was postmarked on March 4th from Brooklyn, New York. The note now demanded $70,000, which is roughly one and a half million today. Oh, my God. So he was like, now you want to do less, we're going to do more. Yeah. According to a document released by the FBI, the governor of New Jersey called the police called a police conference where various theories and policies of procedure were discussed um charles's attorney 
tried to hire private investigators and on March 8th, the attorney received a notes from the kidnappers mm-hmm. saying, quote, an intermediary appointed by the Lindberghs would not be accepted. And it also requested that communications be published in a newspaper. Okay, that's like the, what, the Zodiac Killer was like that? Yeah. Okay. Weird. Oh, then that's so twisted. Like, this has to do with a baby. I know. Like, <sighs> literally, these parents are just trying to get their kid back. Right. So, essentially, this is saying that anyone that wanted to go, wanted to be, like, a go-between needed to apply via ne- via the newspaper and they would continue negotiations essentially like through the person in newspaper ads it was very strange that's so weird yeah yeah so dr john condon who was a retired school principal published an offer to act as a go-between for one thousand dollars of the ransom and on march 9th he received a note from the kidnappers accepting his offer and this was also approved by Charles. That is so bizarre. Isn't it weird? I just thought it was so weird. So, like, the kidnappers basically said something like, okay, we're accepting applications for you to be the middle person. Mm-hmm. But you have to apply via the newspaper. Because obviously, like, they're not going to have it mailed somewhere. Like, that makes it a little suspicious. Right. And so I guess they just, like, I don't know, like, email this person, call this person, like, whatever, and yeah. you're it. Oh, that's yeah. so weird. So the the crazy thing is, like, the kid, and you'll find this out, the kidnapper has, like, their addresses, but, like, they don't have contact with him unless he says, like, unless he gives them a note. But so weird. It's, yeah, it's very strange. Um, on March 10th, Dr. Condon, Condon, uh, I'm going to say Dr. C from now on. Okay. Okay. I like it. Uh, received the ra- he received the ransom amount from Charles, and the money was received in gold certificates, which they thought would be easier to trace if the kidnappers ended up spending the money, mm-hmm. because he would have to cash those in. Right. Um, That's a red flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is really smart to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so immediately after receiving the ransom, Dr. C started negotiations through newspaper columns, and he used the code name Jatsy. Again, odd, but okay. S- so weird. On March 12th, Dr. C received an anonymous call and a fifth note that was delivered to him via a taxi driver who got the note from a random person. The note... <laughs> it sounds so... It sounds like a movie, honestly. Complex. Is all it sounds like. yeah, yeah, literally. Uh, the note said that another note would be found under a vacant farm stand. So it's like a scavenger hunt, essentially. Right. So Dr. C went and found the note that said to meet up with a man named John at Woodlawn Cemetery. There, they met up. They discussed the payment of the ransom. And when Dr. C asked for proof of life, John said they would receive something of the child's to confirm the identity. Like, what, a dirty diaper? Like, that's so weird. No, so it was the sleeping suit. So, like, they're PJs, essentially. I feel like that's not proof of life. That's just proof that you had them. 
Yes. Exactly. I mean, I guess FaceTime wasn't around, but still. Yeah, exactly. Odd. Yeah. So a seventh note, along with the baby's PJs, slash sleeping suit is what it's okay. called, arrived to Dr. C on March 16th. Dr. C then sent the suit to Charles and Anne, and they confirmed it belonged to Charles Jr. Another note was received on March 21st, urging compliance and detailed that the kidnapping had been planned for about a year. Oh my god. So, like, basically yeah. since that... Since the mom was pregnant. Well, t- the baby was almost two. So, okay. like, a couple-month-old infant, yeah. Yeah, that's awful. Yeah. On March 29th, Betty Gow, the nurse, found a thumb guard by the front gate of the estate, and this was worn by the baby the night he was taken. Thumb guard. Okay. It's like a thumb-sucking thing. Okay. Yeah. And on March 30th, Dr. C received a ninth note where the kidnappers increased the ransom to $100,000. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, that's like significantly more. Yeah. April 1st, he received another letter saying to have the money ready the next night. And on the 2nd, he received another letter from a taxi driver saying to do the same thing that he did last time find another note but this time it was under a stone in front of a greenhouse and then on the note on the note that was under the stone it said to meet up with john again and you know make the exchange essentially this is so wild so (laughs) multi-step like don't get me wrong I guess you, like, need those levels of protection, but at the same time, like, what the hell? Yeah, I don't know. Wild. So, Dr. C met up with John and gave him the $50,000 in gold certificates in exchange for a 13th note that said that Charles would be found on a boat named Nellie in Martha's Vineyard. Okay, but was he found? The police searched for the boat and the baby with no avail. Get out. Nope. Okay. And this is where it gets a little sad. Like, just think, like, I would just, like, be so let down. Like, okay, they're telling me my kid is here. Mm -hmm. You go and then You're, like, working with this person trying to get your kid back. You gave them money and, like, nothing. Everything they asked for. Played the stupid game. So, this is... I'm giving trigger warning again. If you want to skip ahead, skip ahead. Cat, you have to listen to it, and I'm sorry. Um, on May 12th, the body of a 20-month baby was found partially buried about four and a half miles away from the Lindbergh's home. Oh, my God. It was partially buried uh, just off the highway and was found by... A trucker named William Allen. The baby's skull had a hole in it and the head oh was crushed. Oh my god. Yeah. That's awful. I know, it's really sad. Um, the body was positively identified and Charles Jr. was cremated on May 13th. Poor baby. I know. The coroner's exam concluded that the child had been dead for about two months by a blow to the head. Oh my god. Yeah. 
Oh my god. I'm not gonna sleep tonight. I'm sorry. It's okay. That's okay. This is a good story. I didn't know that this happened, actually. Yeah. Like, obviously, I know who Charles Lindbergh is. You date a pilot. You marry a pilot. You know who he exactly. is. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I did not know this. Oh my gosh, Jess, that's so sad. That's I know. a baby. It's so sad. I know. Um, on May 26, 1932, New Jersey State Police offered a reward of $25,000 to anyone that came forward with information resulting in the apprehension apprehension and conviction of the kidnappers yeah this reward was shared with the fbi who spread word to all law enforcement officials across the u.s well that's good so everyone was like right that's a lot of money yeah yeah on june 10th 1932 violet sharp who was a waitress for ann's mother um was about to be brought in for re-questioning, but when they went to get her, they found out that she had committed suicide by ingesting poison. So she probably had something to do with that. Well, that's what I thought too, but the police have no reason to believe that she had anything to do with the kidnapping because of her alibi. Hmm. Okay. Which I couldn't even find the alibi, but it just research said that she didn't Hmm. have anything to do with it Hmm. so after the body was found dr c stayed unofficially involved in the case the public highly believed he had something to do with it but there was no evidence showing that he would have been involved um dr c would go to various police departments over the following two years trying to find and like identify cemetery john in quotes um, because he was the only person that actually, like, met Right. Him. Right. During a 30-month period, the gold certificates were spent throughout New York City. Okay. Detectives realized that they were being spent specifically around a subway route, route that connected the Bronx to the east side of Manhattan. Okay. On September 14th, 1934, a bank teller in Manhattan noticed a gold certificate with a license plate etched into the border. That led police to a nearby gas station where the manager had noticed someone with suspicious behavior and wrote down the license plate on the bill. Okay. And the plate was registered to a Richard Hauptman who was living in the Bronx, and he was actually an immigrant from Germany that had a criminal record. Oh my gosh, I'm like on the edge of my seat. I'm like, just talk faster. (laughs) (laughs) Hauptman was arrested, and during his arrest, he was carrying a $20 gold certificate, and the police found $14,000 of the ransom money in his garage. Oh my god. During interrogation, Hauptman stated that his former business partner, Isidore Fish, had left the items for him. Fish died on March 29th after returning to Germany, and he died of tuberculosis. Um, Hauptman told police that he didn't find the money until after Fish had left for Germany. And he said he found the money in a shoebox, and the reason he kept it was because it was owed to him in a business deal that they had made together. Okay, all of that sounds like a ton of crap. It is. Yeah, like, (laughs) all of that sounds like crap. It is. Um, 
Hauptmann denied any involvement or knowledge of the kidnapping. But police, at the same time, were finding evidence that that was not true. Right. Wow. I'm shocked. Yeah. So they found a notebook that contained a sketch of a ladder that was similar to the one that was found at the Lindbergh home two years prior. The homemade ladder. Yes. They also found Dr. C's phone number and address written on a closet wall. That's like some serial killer shit. Dude, yeah. And they found a piece of wood in the attic that was the exact match to the type of wood used in the ladder. Not shocked. Yeah. But that makes it pretty closed case. Like, shut the book. We're done here. Yeah, yeah. Um, on September 24th, 1934, Hauptmann was indicted for extorting $50,000 from Charles Lindbergh. Two weeks later, he was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Jr. And on October 10th, the New York governor hand-delivered Hauptmann to New, to New Jersey authorities for him to face charges for the kidnapping and murder of Charles Jr. Good. On October 19th, he was moved to Hunterton, Hunterton, <laughs> why is that tripping me up? Hunterton County Jail to await trial. So this trial was dubbed the trial of the century because it was such a famous affluent, you know, yeah. it was everywhere. Right, right. Widespread. High profile. High, yes. high, high profile. Yes. Every hotel room in the town of Flemington, New Jersey, was booked by reporters. Oh, damn. Yeah. The judge of the trial was Thomas Whitaker Trenchard. Hauptman's attorney, Edward J. Riley, was hired by the New York Daily Mirror in exchange for rights to publish Hauptman's story in their newspaper. Uh, David T. Willits led the prosecution. Evidence against Hauptman included $20,000 of the ransom money found in his home, mm-hmm. a testimony from eight handwriting experts stating the similarities between the ransom notes and Hauptman's handwriting. More evidence included the match of the wood uh, to the ladder found in the, at the Lindbergh's home. They also found indents in Hauptman's attic that matched exactly where two nails had gone through the wood to create the ladder. Huh. Okay, that's very specific, but okay. Mm. Hauptman was identified as Cemetery John, and other <sighs> witnesses testified that they had seen him wandering around the estate the day of the kidnapping. Can you believe that? Oh my yep. gosh. So that the mediator guy... Was literally meeting with the kidnapper the entire time. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yes. He had been absent. So, Hoffman had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and quit his job two days later. Yeah. I mean, when you hit the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, correction, when you steal the lottery and murder a baby... Yeah. Well, I mean, karma. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, so in his testimony, Hoffman denied being guilty and said that he found the shoebox full of money on the top shelf of the kitchen closet. 
And Hoffman's wife was called to the stand. Um, she denied seeing any shoebox in the closet. And that's where she kept her apron for, like, cooking and stuff. So she would have seen it. Right. So she sold them out, too. Yeah. Well, she didn't, like, say he was guilty. She just said, I never saw a shoebox. Right. Um, which kind of, in turn, shows that he's a liar. Um, Fish's landlady testified that he could barely afford rent prior to his trip to Germany, proving that he never received any money. Hoffman was convicted and immediately sentenced to death. Oh, okay. This is the happy ending. Okay. Yes. He tried appealing twice, but both of those got denied. Yeah. Duh. Um, Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And on April 3rd, 1936, he was electrocuted. Okay. I was hoping the happy ending was for the baby, but... I'm sorry. You know, it's okay. This is second best case scenario. Yeah. Um... Hauptmann's wife, Anna, fought for the rest of her life to clear his name. She died. Wow. She died in 1994 at the age of 95. Wow. So literally for 60 years, almost, she was trying She's to clear dedicated. his name. Yeah. I mean, cray. But yeah, that's the, that's all I had. Wow. That's a wild story. I know. No, I did not know any of that. Yeah. I mean, Wild, you do. Isn't that crazy? Because I had not heard of this until, like, I had only heard of Charles Lindbergh being, right. and, the, and the spirit of St. Louis, you know, flying across the. Yeah. Yeah. Literally in history books. Yeah. But, like, I've never heard, I, I had no idea that his firstborn mm-hmm. was kidnapped and murdered so sad yeah very sad i mean there are people out there that still that think that hoffman had nothing to do with it and it was like a frame job um there are people out there that say that charles actually like tried to stage a kidnapping but like for what reason i was gonna say that's far-fetched yeah like why but yeah, that's hmm. crazy. Well, at least the baby was found and the guy's dead. Yep. See, this one's good. It was like a closed case. There's nobody like. No, it was no loose ends. It was very sad, but yeah, no loose ends. I figured we needed one with that was closed. <laughs> right. Right. True. So, if you guys want to email us, email us at stayinsidepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at stayinsidepodcast. Follow us on Twitter at stayinsidepod. Or join our Facebook group. I haven't checked that in a minute, though. <laughs> the Facebook group? Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what's going on with the moons. Yeah. Somebody in the Facebook group. <laughs> what is happening I'm in curious. the universe? Please tell us. Yeah. <laughs> what is happening? Keep us updated. Uh, but Yes, please. I think it's nap time, Jess. I think it is, too. Yeah. Okay. Okay, bye. Okay, we'll have a... (laughs) Okay, bye!